Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Alan Parry podcast, where I interview fascinating people and then let you listen in. In this episode, we venture into the world of smart politics, where we look at the future of policymaking. You'll be hearing from James Noakes, as well as being one of the people behind the incubator of change company, he's also himself an elected politician. James is the mayoral lead for energy and smart cities on Liverpool City Council. We'll be talking about how to future-proof policy, how big data can mean smarter, more impactful policy making, and whether politicians themselves might one day be replaced by intelligent robots. So for all that and more, let's get straight to it and hear from Councillor James Noakes. Hello, welcome James. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I'm delighted you could join us. Hi Alan, I'm um, delighted to be here. Yeah, well, it's it's going to be really interesting. This I've been um, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, especially as I've been mapping the questions out. Now, just to let people know, you're you're a policymaker in the sense that you're an elected councillor, but you're also a mayoral lead for something that's going to be relevant to this discussion. So, do you want to explain what that that is and what that involves, just to give some background? Yeah, well, it gives some background, but it's probably not specifically about. Well, it leads into the issues that we're going to talk about, but it's yeah. not specific about them, and uh, I wouldn't build it up too much about in terms of being interested as well. Uh, <laughs> always, uh, uh, as a politician, it's always uh, uh, under-promise and over-deliver, isn't it? <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> so, so, so my background, I suppose, uh, if I go through, is, yes, yeah, so currently I am uh, a city councillor in Liverpool. I am a mayor and lead for energy and smart city. So what does that mean? It means that I lead on behalf of the mayor on those issues, uh, so essentially, they are issues that the mayor himself would like to be leading on, but he's realised that there are only 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, so uh, he's passed it, the responsibility on to me. So in many respects, if you're speaking to me about those issues, you're meant to be effectively speaking to the mayor. So what does that entail? Well, the energy side of it um, is to try and move the city to a much more sustainable energy future is one way of describing it. Um, so that means that we work on uh, what kind of big energy issues we need to face up to in the city, how can we promote more renewable and sustainable energy, etc. And on the smart city side, that was a recognition that cities are changing, that we need to understand the impact of technology and uh, different ways of doing things within cities. Uh, and that's the kind of whole smart city agenda. It I always say if you get 10 people in a room, you probably get about 12 different definitions of smart cities. Well, I understand that because I'm a folk musician. It's the same with folk music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, kindred spirits. The, the, um, so, yeah, the, the smart city agenda, I suppose, is just trying to make a better digital future. It's about embracing new technologies, embracing new ways of working, and uh, different ways of understanding how we behave in a city and I lead politically on that but I, I must admit I do find myself because I don't have a huge uh, resource in terms of officers uh, I do find myself doing a lot of that work myself instigating uh, uh, projects but also uh, representing Liverpool across the world actually yeah. in, terms of, in terms of this agenda and I suppose it's probably worth pointing out that my background is I'm, a, I'm an environmental consultant by trade, so okay. I've, I've advised on environmental and energy policy. I used to do a lot of work on climate change uh, adaptation and mitigation uh, policy. I worked in local government myself for 
for over a decade. So, yeah, so I've got a bit of an understanding from, from both sides, but also uh, in the private sector as well. So I suppose that's a little snapshot of my, myself. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And you, 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 in terms of like the, the preamble stuff that you, that you sent me so I could do a little bit of research for this, um, you've got a real interest in future-proofing policy and you sent me some principles that I want to just um, you yeah. know, put the interview around, really. So I'll, I'll, I'll lead in with the first one and then I'm going to ask you a question based it because the first one, basically, you, you were essentially saying to me that one of your principles is that you want to make policy not just for now but for the future as well and you mentioned how um, policy so often doesn't take account of Moore's Law, which for those who don't know is um, that historical observation that in computing, computer power basically doubles every two years. And you're saying that we, we don't take account of that in terms of policy making. So the, the first question I wanted to ask you in terms of that principle of making policy, not just for today, but for the future, can you give me an example of the type of policy making and what that would look like if we actually did do it that way? Um, so yeah, those, those principles I sent through to you were uh, basically three principles for uh, what started as a project and is kind of developing as, uh, as an organization between myself and a colleague, Patrick Harley. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, 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 it's com- we registered it as a company because we thought that was the best vehicle for approaching this, uh, called Incubator of Change. Um, and so that, that first principle, if we just stick with that one, yeah. that, was, that was the sense that we had got uh, and this by no means a criticism of either our own policy approach or, or others that we've seen, um, is that we have not taken into account the future when we are making policy. We are very good in policymaking terms at all levels of solving, t- uh, uh, looking and trying to solve today's problems, very bad at trying to uh, identify the trends uh, of um, and not talking about crystal ball gazing, but certainly looking into the future and saying, okay, well, how will this policy work in the future? So the issue around Moore's Law, which is just one example of where we're not uh, taking this into account, is um, how would you plan to implement policies in the future if you know that computing power is going to be, uh, well, not just more ubiquitous, but certainly more, more powerful as well. So in terms of uh, adult social care, for instance, or I dare say any service that a local authority or government delivers. Um, it's not just a case of, oh, can we have an app for that? It's about turning around and saying, well, okay, if the elderly person of tomorrow is kind of is walking around today with computing power in their pocket that they're really used to, um, that is more powerful, and I know they, all, they always use this as an example, more powerful than sending a man to the moon. Yeah. Um, this, uh, but, I mean, you know, we've got kids walking around with trainers, which probably have more computing power than <laughs> sends a man to the moon yeah. uh, at the moment. Um, so, uh, and we also have, so I pointed, pointed out that in, in 2015, the, the general election, the 18-year-olds who voted for the, first time there, basically grew up in a world where they they only had broadband. They didn't really, they don't remember a time when you even had the dial-up. So to them, that kind of connect connectivity is second nature. And um, they can only see it improving. They can only see 
policies needing to be implemented, that taking that into account. Whereas those of us who remember a time pre-internet, which makes you sound kind of very old, but I mean kind of... Well, I certainly remember that, yeah. Well, pre-public internet, I should say. Yeah, sure. Down the line of, you know, when ARPA existed, etc. Yeah. Um, That uh, pre-public internet, we're probably slightly more forgiving when things uh, go wrong, when uh, things are a bit more analog than digital. Whereas I say, you know, the young person of today, uh, who are, are leaders of tomorrow, uh, they have a very different take. So how does that translate through into policy itself? Well, if you're, uh, you may consider um, policies now which, uh, which hang around perhaps building a specific building. Uh, because that's where you're able to best deliver the services. Um, with the improvements in technology, um, you may not require a particular building. We always use the example, for instance, of a young people now, when I speak to them, and I, you know, I'm only 40 myself, so I don't think myself was particularly old, but um, when I speak to young people now, uh, the idea of owning a car, for instance, isn't as great as it was when I was younger. So they don't, they don't see the... Uh, the object, they're looking much more about what service it delivers to them. Yeah, and Kevin Kelly, the futurist, writes about this, actually. He's got a book out called The Inevitable, and he's got like 12 biases that technology have, one of which is copying, another is sharing. But one of them is what you just mentioned, James, which is um, be, you know, accessing things, so you have access to things rather than ownership. Yeah, yeah, and and, uh, and, and thinking of things in a very different way. Um, the um, the way that people consume TV, for instance, is, is changing. Uh, we have that kind of box set generation. I was sat in a bar the other week uh, with people actually, you know, around about my own age. Uh, and we just got onto the subject of, of kind of watching TV. And as we went around the table, the amount of people who didn't own a TV um, was, was quite striking. Yeah, it's increasing that, isn't it? People yeah. are watching it through their laptops and... Yeah, they, they consume things in a, in a very different way and it wasn't seen as, as balmy, whereas um, you were a figure of fun if you were someone who grew up without a TV uh, when, I was, when I was younger. And the things so rapidly change. Um, uh, some people now, they, they'd look at you silly if you said, well, we've got a screen that sits in the corner of the room that we go to in order to watch. Well, you know, what, what use is that? You can't carry that around with you. You can't get on with your life. It's that kind of... Uh, and when you, when you look at that, um, how do you deliver that in terms of services? I think it... Oh, it well, it and what's, you, what's your thoughts on that? What's the impact on public policy for this kind of... The fact that, you know, two generations down the line, our pensioners will have grown up with Pokemon and, and the internet and all that. So what are the implications for public policy? Um, I think we're still trying to figure some of them out, uh, some of those implications, but I certainly see it as being uh, uh, a need where people are much more in control of their own data. Uh, we, have a, we have a situation at the moment um, where we're just getting used to the idea that, in, in public in general, um, that data is something that's very valuable yeah. and it's something that you can use. But... Um, People are slightly unsure how they can use it. So we've done some work, or we're looking to do some work with the University of Liverpool to see how we can give people back ownership of their data. So, for instance, Facebook, which we constantly point out, you're the product, not the customer. Of course. Yeah. Um, the, uh, well, how do you... Um, and some people kind of quite, you know, they really accept that. Here's my data and I get this service back in return. Uh, and certainly uh, young people see 
data as you know as a commodity that they can easily trade. So they're they're quite happy to give up a lot of a lot of data about themselves in order to get this service back. Um, whether it's uh, the use of an app or whether it's access to uh, other information, etc., so they're quite used to that. We've got a generational shift that uh, gets quite concerned uh, about that. So uh, I think one of the key things that we're going to have to consider in the future is how do we give that power back to individuals? And how do we? How, how do we do that? Because I'm, I'm thinking, you see, that one of the kind of dangers, and I read your article, which I'm going to link into the show notes, where you were talking about how the private sector is initially, like the public sector, if you like, is becoming increasingly dependent upon the private sector providing these services. And it almost seems like that's a little bit dangerous, and they're collecting all the data in their cloud. And, um, you know, how, how do we actually bring that back? Because, it, it, like I say, it almost seems as though the private sector are becoming very powerful simply because the public sector is going to be increasingly dependent upon them for delivering the service and for the data collection and the 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 kind of understanding of the big data as well. Oh, certainly, uh, and that uh, needing to find a different relationship between the public and private sectors in terms of how we deliver services uh, to to our citizens is is a big question, and there'll always be a tension uh, between them. Whenever people bring that issue up, and I was with. A number of different cities from Northern Europe uh, the other week, and we were talking precisely about this about this issue. Whenever that comes up, it actually, you know, it sounds it's pretty much like the age-old um, argument between uh, socialism and capitalism to a certain degree about you know what role should the state play in uh, people's lives, etc. Um, I still, I, I personally think you know in my political background, there's a, a huge role for the state to play, but in in two respects, one is ensuring that the security is there for people so that they are protected from the worst of the private sector. Um, but secondly, in recognition that the public sector owns a huge, well, holds a huge amount of data in the first place, um, that we know the private sector uh, would like to uh, access. And in some respects, I think it would be right to allow that in order to, uh, to help innovate. But secondly, um, that we recognise that in the public sector that we hold that data and um, we can do good things with it ourselves, but it has to be in conjunction with the people. Well, I, I suppose I'm struck, you see, by, you know, whenever anyone talks about future-proofing policy, the thing I'm always struck by about the, the future, it's like uh, what Niels Bohr, the, the Nobel Prize winner, said predictions mm-hmm. very difficult, especially when it's about the future. And, yeah. you know, I, I didn't predict Leicester City would win the league and that Donald Trump <laughs> would, Leicester, would, No, nobody did. And that Donald Trump would be the, you know, on the verge of becoming the president. Right. So, so predicting just what's around the corner is very, very difficult. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do we actually predict the distant future when virtual reality comes in and artificial intelligence comes in? Um, I, I, I guess... They're already with us. I mean, artificial yes. intelligence essentially... Uh, completes uh, most of the trades on the stock markets uh, uh, these days. It's just computers kind of having a conversation with each other, um, uh, which I personally think there's a kind of problem in that uh, yeah. myself. But, um, yeah, I suppose that's a cultural issue as much as it is a technical one. Um, but, yeah, some of these things are already with us. I think it's much more – It's much. Uh, there's a, there's a, a fascinating and fantastic woman called Annalise Kiar. Um, who uh, talks about uh, future trends. So, and I think that's a, a much more 
interesting and useful way of looking at things. So rather than turning around and saying, this is what the future will particularly look like, is turning around and identifying where trends are going. So there is this trend for uh, more uh, technological um, solutions. There is this trend for opening up data. There is this trend for uh, people wanting to communicate in a very different way. Yes. Um, and there's also the, the, the massive trend of people moving to cities um, and, uh, and, you know, globally. Uh, so uh, since 2008, we've had more, um, we've, we've, we've been an urban planet. Uh, so we have more people living in cities than we do outside of them. Um, so so it's kind of looking at those trends, looking at the trends like uh, the sharing economy, like we mentioned before, about how people would rather, um, they'd rather get an Uber than own a car. It's that kind of, uh, so, so looking at those trends, I think, begins to point towards a different focus on policymaking. But I think um, you'd highlighted that we had three principles. And I think they all have to hang together. Yeah, I was going to bring in the second one, actually, because one of the things you said is that um, technology is built with um, obsolescence, but policy doesn't tend to be. And I was, I was, you know, policies will become obsolete, I think, is your point. And I was wondering, what are the factors that make a policy um, obsolete at some point in the future? Or are you just thinking that policy really needs to be reviewed every you know, so often just to make sure that technological change hasn't overtaken it? Or you think that there's certain factors there that you're like, well, that's obviously going to die soon because of this reason? Mm, Maybe I, I, demographic factors or whatever. Uh, there is a... The, so that, that kind of second principle was was that policy is developed as if it, it's going to last forever uh, in a lot of cases. Not all. I mean, none of these are hard and fast kind of uh, principles where we, you know, they're not open to challenge at sure. all. Um, but, uh, yeah, policy, a lot of the time is developed as if, right, we've found the solution, and there we go. And not enough thought is given to how can we identify the many variables that we need to identify that will give us an indication of where we need to change tack. And quite often, if you've ever studied uh, management theories, um, there's something called strategic drift, where um, if you can imagine it as... Uh, if you can imagine it as, a, as an oil tanker traveling from the UK over to America, uh, it's a series of small little adjustments in sure. order to keep it on course. Whereas if it just allowed itself to, to drift uh, a bit further away from that particular course, all of a sudden it has to make you know, a huge correction. So you're talking about policy making as, as something which is essentially an ongoing process rather than, right, we've made the decision, we've got the solution, move on. Yes, um, I dare say uh, many people who are listening to this will say, well, that's what people sh uh, should do anyway. But it's surprising the amount of times where a policy is, is decided. And, you know, we only need to look at Parliament and see where this happens. A policy is decided and then it's, there we go. And then until we find that it's not really workable, and then we have to come back and make a different policy. There's got, I think we've got to look at a very different uh, approach to how, you know, to, to how we build in flexibility. One of the things that we, uh, we say is that we need to be able to identify the canaries in the coal mine. Uh, and what do we mean by that? Well, in the, in the era of, of big data, um, that means that we can begin to bring together huge amounts of data sets that where we previously thought they've got nothing to do with each other. And so we can begin to identify some interesting trends, some interesting 
um, maybe coincidences, um, but begin to see where things are actually imp impacting uh, on each other. Um, the uh, and, and so from that, you can see that when we're making policy, we need to be aware of the so many different variables that could be uh, impacting on that. And uh, I use a, I use an example usually when I'm talking about um, there's an area in Liverpool uh, called Anfield, which many people will know because it's right next to the, the football club. Yeah. And uh, over the certainly the last, shall we say, 15 years or, or maybe a bit more, there have been issues in terms of housing, vacant housing uh, and the rest. And there's been some big ticket schemes that have gone in there, housing market renewal. There's been other schemes that have gone in there. Um, to try and uh, to try and revive the area, to try and regenerate the area. Now, I don't think that in that instance or in many other instances, um, people have identified all the different variables that could have come in into play there. So we don't know whether that area began to suffer because a particular family moved in, or a family moved out, or a shop moved, or a bus uh, route moved. Um, now we have the opportunity. And I, we've done some work with people like the Hartree Centre to discuss with them uh, how we could possibly take some of this forward. Now we have the opportunity of bringing all that data together and being identify some uh, some uh, useful trends uh, and some interesting points. So when you talk about spotting the canary in the coal mine, you're trying to find the bit by constantly assessing the data where the kind of red light comes on and you think, right, here's an area that was previously vibrant and we can see before it's happened that there's a potential problem here so we need to intervene yeah um no it's worth pointing out though none of this is is, is infallible you know there, sure. there will be there, there will be instances where you just you know don't see and you know we could go talk about black swans um uh, a lot but um yeah, a, bl a black black swan is is where you get some sort of freak incident, really, isn't it? I suppose is that yeah. what you mean by that? The yeah, Nicholas so, Taylor book. Yeah, yeah, um, which is a fascinating book, um, and I think it has influenced quite a lot of people. Uh, and I uh, think you can go one of two ways: one, be better prepared, or or, or the other side, which is, well, it's going to happen anyway. Why should we care? Um, so Are we good really, enough at making really, sense of the data, though, James? Because I'm thinking like. One of the things I've noticed in the past decade in terms of football, I'm a keen football fan, as you know, that a lot of football clubs are employing these statisticians in order to monitor the players. And I wonder at, at what extent are we drowned in data? Do you know, because we've got so much of the stuff, haven't we? How good are we at the moment at, at actually being able to mine the data and understand the data rather than just be, be drowned in it? I think we're not very good at all. Um, and that is partly because... All, you know, 90% of the data uh, that exists now is created in the last two years. That gives you an indication of just you know how much people can be uh, swamped in yeah. terms of in, in terms of data. So we're not very good at all, but it's not surprising. Is this a job um, for machines rather than humans? Do you think, like the artificial intelligence you, you mentioned, is it is it possible some sort of deep learning? We can leave this to machines to kind of stick its hand up and say, "Listen, everybody, there's a problem." I think to a degree that will be the case. Uh, there's some really interesting stuff around uh, deep learning uh, and uh, uh, how that develops on from machine learning, etc. So, there's, so the, I think that's definitely the case. But um, I'm a big advocate of making sure that the human, the, that the people, are still at the heart of it um, because I don't think you should dismiss the emotional response to things. Mm. Um, I don't think you should just 
simply because um, simply be- we ha- I, the, the the link that I sent to you the piece that I wrote about smart cities. Um, yes. Well, I don't know whether I mentioned in there, but there's a kind of taking away some of the serendipity that um, that happens in life that. Uh, happenstance and the like. I, I think that's what kind of makes. You did it. mention it, yeah, because you were talking about things that just kind of happen to you, and when we're all efficiently processed around a city, they they no longer happen, and that's a real human loss. Yeah, when we when we talk, if we're talking about all of this, what we've just been talking about about data and uh, policy making, um, you've got to understand why on earth we're doing it in the first place, and that's to make people's lives better, not necessarily just to make people's lives hyper efficient. Yes, um, that isn't always better. Um, so, yes, there will be an element of this is a task for machines. Uh, some of that is just kind of just crunching at scale that we as humans wouldn't be able to do. But I still think there's some there, there is definitely a role for people in terms of interpreting that, understanding what the emotional uh, response and the human response uh, should be to that. Um, so we have we have an opportunity to um, to begin to form policy that is that in itself is better monitored and, and managed and that we understand uh, just what kind of things that we should be taking into account. And I think that at a local, national and international level that we're still just beginning to figure that out. And I think within companies as well, that they are just beginning to figure out, hang on, this is something that we need to, to, to get on top of. And that's, that's you know, part of the reasons why it's one of the, the principles that, that, that we've got down there. I noticed in your article you you were kind of um, I, I sensed a little bit of frustration in there that the whole idea of smart cities and the use of this data wasn't actually solving big enough problems. You know, you were you were talking about you know you're making a comparison between say the Clean Air Act and getting someone on to, on, to a particular destination five minutes quicker, and it sounded like you were a bit frustrated that all of this stuff was focusing on the little bits and you were looking at you know the the evils that were identified decades ago by the beverage report and yeah. i was i was just wondering you know whether you could say a little bit more about that and and what kind of hopes you've got at the kind of capability that, that all this smart stuff has of solving real problems like the indian delegates at the conference said you know his idea of a smart city is where everyone's got proper um, sanitized water and stuff like that what can this big data do? What can this smartness actually deal with? Um, the, so, so yeah, that, that Indian delegate, it was that quick conversation that I had uh, which precipitated that article um, around what he saw as a smart city. So everyone else was talking about much more efficient street lighting and better parking and stuff, and he turned around and said it'd just be uh, being able to provide clean water and sanitation. Yeah. Um, which you then begin to think, wow, you know, that's still an issue in the world. Why aren't we kind of really focusing on that? My, I suppose my my gripe really was that given the huge amount of resources and given the huge amounts of brain power that are being focused on some of these issues, um, why are we kind of shying away from some of the really big issues that, that, that faces that's that's a cry down the ages, I suppose. Sure, that, that people are always going to have. But I just my my own feeling was that, um, you know, we we live in we live in an, uh, in an age when I personally feel that we could be able to to solve some of those issues, and uh, we're just not, um, and we're not really well. I know some people are, and we're not really focusing on it. So there's some really interesting stuff. So the Longitude Prize was a really interesting one. 
um, which came out and said kind of the big issue that they wanted to, to address was um, uh, was antibiotic use. Right. And, uh, and there was a number of other kind of big issues. You know, and by that, do they mean that germs are becoming immune to them and so we need to sort this out? Yeah, what's the next generation of antibiotics? Or yeah. what do we do in response to that precise issue that you just raised, that um, they're not as effective as they used to be? Um, and, yeah, there were a number of different issues that the Longstreet Prize uh, uh, threw up. But it just felt that, yeah, it just... I regularly get people getting in touch with me and saying we've got a great solution for your for your city and it is uh, and it can be well we've got a parking app or piece of sensor technology that can help people find their parking space kind of two minutes quicker. Now, on an aggregate level, yeah, you've probably saved you know hundreds of hours of people's um, people's time there. But um, like. Now, like many things, uh, they, is that really making a huge difference to someone's life that they've been able to park uh, a couple of minutes quicker? Um, or, uh, you know, they could have missed out on an awful lot of other things at the same time, going back to that serendipity. Uh, um, so uh, why can't we focus on some of the kind of bigger issues that are around poverty? Like one that really concerns me, and I keep raising it at Smart City events, is that even in the smartest city, we still need to eat. Uh, yes, I've still I've not noticed anyone who's been able to get away with not eating in uh, in a smart city. So, um, and yet we have a real real issue around that particular um, problem. How do we feed all these people living in cities, especially? And um, the whole smart is well, most of it's not really focusing on that. It's not really taking that into account. I is, is, it, is it possible? Sorry to interrupt. Is it is yeah. it possible for this is the question that's in my mind that I'd kind of noted down when I was looking at this. Can things like, you know, want and, and food poverty and things like that, can that actually be solved by, like, big data or smarter processes? Can, can this stuff be solved through data rather than the, the kind of standard political things that we would look at, which is more like redistribution? So the, the, the mantra that people will normally have is that if people are poor, you need to redistribute things. But is it, so is it even possible to, to try and, you know, efficiency this out through the use of data? Or am I kind of missing the point there? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be so fixated on data itself. Um, but uh, I just, I, it's definitely got a role to play. I think there are, without trying to recreate the world in, uh, in a computer, uh, and, to un- and to understand uh, how it works. There is definitely uh, the ability to bring together huge amounts of data sets. And this is what big, big data is all, all about, to be able to uh, bring together huge data sets, to be able to, fig- to, be able to identify uh, things that we've not been able to identify before. I was very struck once when I was at the Hartree Centre, which is just over the river in Darsbury, um, uh, from here in Liverpool. The, the, they'd done some work with Glaxo, Smith Klein, the large pharmaceutical company, and they were looking at a particular, I think it was condition or a disease, where they understood there was three triggers, and they brought all this data together, and I've seen it all mapped out, and it's a huge mess in many respects, but that's basically what big data's uh, all about. But they just noticed, just through crunching the data itself at a scale that was previously unimaginable, that actually there was a fourth issue that they were able to identify uh, from that, and the more they looked into it, the more it was like, right, that is actually an area that we should be focusing on. So, in one respect, that's really great for tackling that particular condition. In the other respect, clearly, 
uh, Glaxo are going to make a well, they hope to make a lot of money out of that for yeah. for, for very small uh, outlay in terms of what they've had to do. Uh, it wasn't a, the, the research that they've uh, been able to to do previous. Um, so I think that's just an indication that when you look at the data, you can look at you can identify things in a very different way at a much more local level. For instance, uh, a few years back. I did some work in my own ward that I represent, which is a um, comparatively deprived ward in the north end of Liverpool. Uh, and we overlaid the data on crime, on environmental crime, on NEETs, which are uh, young people who are not in education, employment or training, uh, on people with limited long-term illnesses, etc., on antisocial behaviour. And we discovered some a couple of in- really interesting things. So... In one particular location, which was just a corner of a road with not actually any houses on that corner, it was right near a block of flats, etc., there was a huge confluence of, of these issues. Um, and we basically figured out that if we, not, if we got the local housing association to knock down some garages next to it, um, which were not being used, that may, be, um, that may, that may tackle sort of a lot of the problems in the area. And it actually did. Oh, okay. In, in, in another... In a housing estate that, for many years, people have said it's very, it's really bad for antisocial behaviour. So, why were the garages? What was the issue with that? Is it just a, a congregation point, or? Well, I mean, like in the same way that you know, badly designed areas can encourage crime, right? And they can, and they can encourage kind of uh, a lot of behaviours that you don't want. Um, and so, this kind of opened opened it up. It got rid of a blight. It opened it up. Um, Allied with investments in the area from the House Association anyway. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's certainly begun to address the issues that we'd identified. The, the much more interesting one, as I was just about to say, was the housing estate where we overlaid all this data. And a lot of people turned around and said, oh, it's terrible for antisocial behavior, this, this whole estate. And when we, when we did this data exercise, we identified two specific locations where the antisocial behaviour was arising from. And actually, we knew those houses and we knew those families. Um, and so that did two things. One, it meant we could target the resources better. So we could, uh, between the different organisations, ourselves, the police, the housing association, etc. But secondly, it let people in the area know that this isn't a terrible antisocial, be- uh, antisocial behaviour area. This isn't a place that is just open to antisocial behaviour. That actually, there was specific um, people who are engaged in this. And once we deal with that, it'll prove it. Now, it's not, again, not the most perfect place in the world, but um, that made a huge difference and it really impacted. That's just one instance where data can help, but it's not just, just going to be data where you get, um, where you get the benefits in the future. Uh, it's, not, it's not just that. Um, there's going to be a, a lot more to it. There's a lot more in terms of how we, you know, how we treat each other, how we view the world, what kind of principles we all uh, converge around, etc. So it's not just the data, but the data plays a plays a big part. What role do you think in the future um, politics and work? Because um, I, I notice that a lot of the things that are kind of um, being invented now and and are being talked about as part of the future, like robots doing our work and artificial intelligence doing our work and all this kind of thing. What role do you think work has and how does that impact in politics? I'm I'm looking at things like 
you know, it's a, it's a relatively old idea, I know, but it seems to be getting a bit more traction. Things like the basic income guarantee seems to be being raised. And one of the arguments that people are using in various places across the world is that in the future, we won't actually be doing a lot of the work. Robots will be doing that for us. And so citizens who can't sell their labor will then need some sort of way of surviving. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that or is that kind of outside your scope? No, I, well, I, it's it's not something I particularly work on as such, but um, but yeah, definitely, uh, it's something that we think about. Uh, there's certainly going to be certain roles that lend themselves much more easily to machines do, um, doing them. So, if you can map out what the flowchart is, then uh, pretty much a computer could do it. Yeah. Because that's pretty, at its most basic level, that's what a computer does. So, you know, it's a series of flowcharts, if this, then that, armor, you know, yeah. pretty much. Um, so if you can map out the flowchart, then, you know, why couldn't a machine do it? And it could probably do it uh, a lot quicker in some respects, but also um, in some instances, uh, you know, it doesn't get tired for instance, so in some instances, you know, it could do it twenty-four-seven. And I'm guessing a machine might even be able to come up with a flowchart as they become more intelligent, yeah, spot the patterns, and build the chart. Certainly, certainly. However, um, I'm just a great believer in the human rights. I don't, I don't think that because um, don't forget, it's humans that are going to parameters to these machines. Now, I know people get a bit lost in the science fiction of artificial intelligence, but I just, you know, um, I don't. I don't believe uh, that really. Um, that that's the kind of future. That's quite a dystopian view of how machines are going to impact. I think we'll find different things to do. The majority of jobs that people will have in fifty years' time, I think, are not going to exist now. Sorry, they don't exist now. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I was born, if I was to turn around and tell my dad that I was going to be an environmental consultant, he probably would have looked at me and got, <laughs> "I have a clue what you're talking about." Um, so, uh, and yet, you know, that's a huge industry that's grown up certainly in the last 40 years. Uh, that may, that may be done and dusted in the next 20, 30 years. Who knows? Um, a whole host of different, uh, jobs. Um, but it'll mean, I think that people look to do other things that people want to be productive. People want to, uh, improve not just their own lives, but those of others. So I just think that people will harness some of that technology to, to help them deliver new types of jobs in the future. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as kind of concerned that we'll have huge amounts of people out of work wondering what on earth they can do simply because machines um, doing their job. Uh, throughout history, there are people who have railed against the advance of, the advance of technology, and yet we still find things for people to do. I'm, I'm just respectful of your time. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Um, but just on this thing, just before we go, what I used to work at, um, I used to be a lecturer in the computer science department at the University of Liverpool, yeah. and I wasn't dealing with undergraduates, I was dealing with business, and one of the things, me kind of thinking from a political background as well, is as the kind of economy begins to shift from atoms to bits, so like we're not making tangible Ooh. things, but stuff you can download and stuff, I was thinking of, you know... To what extent is this kind of economy, like a copying economy, a sharing economy and all that sort of stuff, where it's not tangible and you can kind of, like I'm a musician, someone can actually get my music just by clicking, they actually do the work themselves, I don't do it once it's out there. Yeah. To what extent is this kind of an economy 
compatible with capitalism itself? Oh, yeah. Ask me the, the small questions. Right <laughs> um, uh, well, I think, uh, I mean, it, people, are, people are always looking at there's going to be different ways of monetizing different approaches. Um, so uh, I, think, I think, you know, it definitely is. I mean, we've, we now see crowdfunding, uh, which uh, in some shape, way or form has always existed. Uh, but it's it's you know it's much more streamlined these days that you're able to uh, that you're able to, to do that. And you're also able to access a lot more opportunities to do that um, simply because we've got the internet. Um, but yeah, uh, I think there will always be people who take what the you know the prevailing uh, technologies are and then figure out ways of monetizing them. There will you know there will, there, I think that will always exist. I don't think I don't see. Capitalism. Um, anyone getting rid of it, rid of it uh, any day soon. But equally, I don't think it's going to be. The future is a rampant capitalism. I come from a much more uh, democratic socialist, socialist democrat background. So I think you know, uh, I'm, maybe I'm just inclined to believe that that's the kind of future that it's uh, that it's going to be. That there will be a balance between the two, but there'll always be tension. So just to finish off, then, as I say, I want to be respectful of your time. No, it, I'm actually all right, but yeah. Oh, okay. Well. What, what I'm interested in hearing is when, when we're talking about the future generally and in particular in terms of like future policy and, and the tools in terms of the data and the, all the other stuff like intelligent machines or whatever comes up um, that will help you make policy to make people's lives better. What are the things which you're most afraid of when you think of this future and what are the things to be a bit more positive that give you the most hope? What are you most hopeful of as well? I'm most hopeful of us being able to solve some of those really difficult issues that have always uh, impacted on us. Why, why are poor areas always poor, um, for instance? That, uh, you know, maybe it makes me sound like I'm a bit of a dreamer, but the idea that we can be able to solve some of those problems. But, you know, history, to a certain degree, is on our sides. There are many different diseases, for instance, that we never yeah. thought we could, we could conquer. Uh, and um, I know it's a bit old hat, but sending a, a well it, to, to a lot of people, but sending a um, sending a human to the moon. I mean, seriously, we've actually sent someone to a different to you know to out of our out of our planet's orbit. It's, well, actually, it's still within the orbit, isn't it? But anyway, <laughs> you know, I think you know what I mean. You know, I do. So, so all those different things that um, were kind of very remarkable. Uh, as a species that we've been able to do that. So I'm, I'm really hopeful uh, in the sense that we'll be able to solve some of these big uh, issues in, in the future. Some of it will be because we want to and some, some of it will be because we have to. Uh, you know, I get very concerned about our approach to things like climate change, uh, whether we're moving uh, enough. Yeah. Um, I get very concerned when I hear some people talk about um, how they view other people on the planet. Um, simply because they're either from a different country or they're from a different social class or what have you. Yeah. I get concerned about things like that. I get very concerned uh, about ensuring that people have access to some of these solutions. So, um, you know, you can look at other countries in the world where we know how to, for instance, um, mend someone's arm when they've broken it. But there are some places in this world, and I include some developed countries, where simply because people can't access the healthcare, yeah. uh, they can't they can't get their arm fixed, for instance. So I get really concerned about uh, things like that. I don't fear anything 
um, because I think there will always be good people doing good things. Yeah. I fear drones, I have to admit that, but drones terrify me. Is, uh, that, is that because they've primarily been used in the military? Um, possibly, but I also see that it could be used um, in a terrorist way. Um, it could be used as well just to watch me, and as cameras get mo- you know better, you know, going back to Moore's law, you know, the drones drones could follow us round even from a real distance. I suppose, and I suppose my actual initial fear would be that uh, you can't escape technology. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be more of a fear than uh, I, I take on board what you're saying. There are there are always dangers. Um, in different technologies and what uh, you know, the state may do or what uh, private institutions may do, for instance. So uh, there are always concerns with that. But in terms of um, the technologies themselves, I don't, I don't fear them. I think they can be used just as much for good as, as for bad. And I personally think that we will use them much more for, for good uh, in the future. However, I do get concerned that there'll be no escaping from some of it. Yeah, I think that's already an issue, isn't it? Now, when, when, people, when people turn around and say they want a great holiday, very few people will say, and my idea of a great... I mean, not saying that these don't exist, but very few people will turn around and say, my idea of a great holiday is somewhere where people can always contact me yeah. and, um, and all of that. I used to work, <laughs> when I worked in... I used to work in sustainable travel... And I used to always point a travel agent and ask for to, to, for them to send you to somewhere where you can only get around by car, where it's really difficult uh, to cross a road, where it's really noisy and polluted, etc. And you know, and say, and they're the principles that I want for my holiday. Very rarely do we say that, and yet we seem to accept that at home uh, quite a lot. Um, so there's a kind of uh, uh, I just always find that very very strange. Um, so, uh, I well, that's an interesting idea, actually. So, when we're going on holiday, we want to be close to where everything is. We want to be able to have good public transport and so on. And then we we come back home, and for fifty weeks of the year, we're we're living yeah. in completely the opposite situation. Yeah, I, I just found I found that utterly bizarre. Yeah, um, it's very insightful, actually. Just, um, yeah, uh, that, and and you know, very rarely will anyone come back from holiday and say, "Oh, it was brilliant. It was really difficult to get to somewhere." <laughs> traffic for ages yeah really really loved it it was home from home um, <laughs> the, uh, and so uh, and yeah and yeah back here you know people complain that they can't get their car somewhere i think some of that's changing thanks to what we were talking about before about the kind of sharing economy uh, and the like I, I mean i always point out that one of the one of the smartest things that we've done in the city is the is the city bike scheme Yes, yes. Because it's it's opened up a whole new uh, world for people. I was walking down. Well, can I just explain to those who aren't in Liverpool? The city bike scheme is is where you can basically borrow a bike, and the, the Liverpool Council provide this, don't they? And I'm a member of this, so you can pick up a bike at any anywhere and 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 drop it off at another bike park, which are dotted around the city. Yeah, it's similar to what they've got in London and Paris, right. and Barcelona, and other places. Um, and Liverpool has got one, and I was walking down the promenade one evening, and which makes me sound like I'm some Victorian, but anyway, <laughs> um, I was walking down the promenade, and there was a group of young people, maybe about 15, 16 years old, all of them sat out on the grass enjoying themselves, all of them had a city bike yeah. with them, and I always point out that, that that gathering there and then probably wouldn't have taken place without that provision of that city bike. Because they wouldn't have been able to get there, it wouldn't have been accessible. Uh, 
uh, it's just great that we're able to provide uh, something like that that adds to the value of their life. Uh, and I think you know there are some of the principles around what you'd want to uh, you'd want to develop a smarter city as. And the interesting thing about that, it's a really old technology, but in order to actually run the scheme, you need the new technology as well. Yeah, and then there are other things that we can stick on, on, on top of that, So, which it opens up doors to. So, for instance, when we measure air quality, um, air quality sensors tend to be put about 15 foot up on a lamppost. I, I've yet to find a 15 foot person. <laughs> um, and, but they, t- they tend to be put there simply like someone, you know, no one can get up there and, and grab them and, and, and thieve them. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's in cities all over the world. So, uh, And yet the pollution that we really should be concerned about is much lower down. And so looking in the future, can, can we put sensors on city bikes is uh, a really interesting... Oh, well, that is a good idea. Also, there are some questions around, you know, can we monitor where people take them? So we know where they start and finish, but we don't know the routes. Now, some people then get concerned about, oh, you just monitoring people and, uh, and individuals. Well, actually, no, and we can put... Um, we can put things into place to make sure we don't know who were, who were, who it is. Um, so we can put up those 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 kind of te- technological walls. But it's really useful for us because then it can help us plan the city better. Because if people are constantly taking one particular route and we thought nothing of putting cycle um, friendly infrastructure in there, yeah. then we should be. So it's kind of it it opens up that. So um, some of that old style technology, like what a bike is, can really open up to some more interesting things that we can do. Uh, that producing more data so we can help run the city. Yeah, and this is essentially how Google have worked, isn't it? They ran a free uh, telephone service, and that's how they were able to get their voice recognition so good. And you know, these these kind of things is is essentially how some of those organisations have worked. They've run a service, and the service has got them data, which has benefited life in another way. Yeah, um, I find Google Maps fascinating, for instance. So, uh, Google Maps. If you ever use the traffic element of that, yeah. it flags up whether a road, and if it's got a lot of traffic, it's red. That's right. If it's, if it's open and free-flowing, it's green. doesn't actually measure traffic. It measures smartphones. And oh, well, it, I didn't know that. Tell me more about this. Yeah, so basically, uh, every smartphone's got its own signature. You don't need to know who owns that smartphone. Yeah. You just need to, and their algorithms basically take into account whether that's could be someone walking down the street, could it be... Um, uh, you know, is it? So yeah, it, it kind of takes into account whether a lot of different things, so that they can understand whether this is uh, this is someone traveling in a vehicle. So that's um, amazing. So when you see, so when you see a very dark red road, it means there's an awful lot of people with Android phones <laughs> that sat there. Um, wow, I've learned something there because I didn't know that at all. That's really interesting because we've tested that out in Liverpool um, and. One of the kind of first things we had to do, there's a company here that worked with uh, Liverpool One and Mersey Travel. Um, and one of the first things they had to do was make sure that the data was anonymous. So we weren't, generally weren't interested in the people. We were just interested in, you know, a person and where they were moving. And so we were able to understand how people walk around the city centre. Now, now, in terms of how can that affect policy, I'm not saying we will do, but that could affect things like business rates. Yeah. It could affect uh, where we invest in the public realm. It could affect um, businesses in terms of how they advertise to people. So if they're able to turn around and say, well, this person regularly tra- you know, this 
anonymous smartphone regularly travels this route. Yeah. Um, perhaps that's something we should uh, target, you know, them in a particular way. So we should, you know, give them particular offers or uh, we should improve our... Um, Street our lighting offer. in that area or something. Yeah. So yeah. Could, well, if this person constantly arrives at the... Um, gets to town, gets to the city centre um, and gets there by bus, well... Uh, are we really advertising? Maybe we should be advertising. If we're selling some big ticket stuff, maybe we should be advertising a free home delivery service because this person clearly doesn't drive into town. Yeah. And it's all those different things. So it opens up different uh, opportunities for, for, for business, but it also opens up different policy making for, uh, for, for the public sector as well. Do you open up any of this data at all, like the council data about the council, but also the other stuff like this? I mean, is that the plan to open it up so other people can kind of get access to it and come up with their solutions and feedback as well? I think that's the long-term plan. Uh, we certainly do want to, to open up that. Um, but at the same, I, I don't think it is particularly useful to just open it up and say, there you go. I think at the same time, you need to have a bit of education that comes with it as well. So there are certainly some companies and other organizations who would really like to open up have access to that data and go off and do some great stuff but at the same time um i think if you're going to do that you need to be able to educate the public so it is in it is in our plant but we want to find ways that we engage the citizen for reasons one so that they can you know make the most of it and two so that they're not concerned about uh, security issues yeah well, I'll ask you one last question then, James. It's been a fascinating conversation, so I'm really thankful for you for coming on. But um, this is a bit of a cheeky question, I suppose, but it's it's kind of a bit sci-fi, but you never know. It, it could actually happen. Um, do you ever think politicians themselves might become obsolete, where you just kind of have intelligent machines powered by smart data and we have an election to decide what, what objectives to give the machines? Well, I uh, when I give a presentation to... Uh, my fellow councillors uh, in, in the, the Labour group, which I'm a part of on the, on the City Council and the Mayor, uh, and I outlined some of the great stuff that's going on um, that we're doing, like that, you know, monitoring where pedestrian use. Uh, we've got there's a great scheme at the moment that a couple of companies in Liverpool are working on, which is looking at can you send data to, can you send the the the, the route. Uh, to a patient to straight to the ambulance and then the ambulance you know in its GPS and then when the ambulance goes down that route the lights automatically change in its favour oh, wow. so, it, so it gets a really smooth route yeah. through um, because most accidents happen at junctions when it involves emergency services yeah. uh, and the like because uh, for those people who drive you know we've all been there where yeah. you're un- you, can, you know there's an ambulance coming behind you but you're unsure because you're on red you're unsure whether the other drivers around you know that that's going to be the case and all of those different things. So yeah. I did this presentation which outlines some of that great stuff and the 3D printing that happens in the city and the like. Uh, and on the last slide, I did pose the question, do we need, <laughs> need councillors? And what was, your, what was the outcome? Um, uh, a few wry smiles. I <laughs> um, but, but the reason why I point that is, um, again, it's not, it's not the intention of... Uh, of the technology, but it is uh, an, an implication of it. And yeah. so I use use the example at a very local level that for many years, uh, tenants and residents associations used to used to be uh, very active 
And so that's where a particular housing estate, for instance, would have a tenants and residents association where they'd all come together and they'd all discuss what particular issues that they've got. And then that would be a place where people like the council or the housing association uh, or uh, whoever, the police, for instance, um, they, they'd turn up and people would be able to put their views to them and they'd be able to get responses back, etc. And that kind of very organized way. Um, but... To a certain degree, that's quite that's quite analog, isn't it? Yeah, so that, absolutely. That, that requires people to, to turn up and uh, and to discuss about things. Uh, we've noticed, I've certainly noticed, even in the last eight years that I've been on the council, I've noticed the reduction in my ward of these tenants and residents association uh, associations. And one of the reasons is because people contact us in a very different way. They don't need to turn up on a uh, on a Wednesday evening to find out what the local councillor is doing or what the uh, the police are doing, etc. They can sign up to services where they get an email or they get a text message or they can look on Twitter and uh, they can look on the internet to find out lots of things that are going on. Um, it's still There's still some people who appreciate that kind of face-to-face -face stuff, so you're still offering that. But that whole engagement has changed. Um, I still think there's a need for uh, representative democracy. So I still think there's a need for people electing people into positions who will oversee some of these changes, who will be able to be a voice uh, on some of these things. So I don't see the end of politicians as such. Um, and I'm not, also not a great fan of... Um, of ruling just by plebiscite, so just by referenda. Um, because I think you need people who've spent the time taking into account all the different uh, information and are able to weigh that up and then you know make a decision and be accountable for it. I still I'm still quite a, a fan of representative democracy. So in answer to your question, I think the role will definitely change, but there'll still be a need for it. Okay, well that's smashing. I've really enjoyed the conversation, James. No, um, there was one. Yes, one, go on. To the third principle. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, you were talking about testing, actually, weren't you? I've missed that one out. It's not. Um, it's not. It's not so much a principle, uh, really. Um, it's that. So, so we need to take to the. So going through, you need to take into account the, the the future and how and those future trends. Secondly, you need to understand the variables so that you can understand when policy is going to be obsolete. And I think the third one is how do you put into practice some of some of this? So there are really interesting ways that people incubate uh, uh, approaches um, you know a, a really favored one at the moment is that kind of lean startup approach so where you get to a minimum viable product and you get out there whereas in certainly in policymaking terms there's a huge amount of time spent can we just get it to the best we can get it before we get out there yeah. um, so it's, it's, that, it's that thing isn't it if you're not embarrassed by your first iteration you, you've, you've waited too long basically yeah. so yeah. you're talking about getting an idea out and actually testing whether this has got any legs before before you start rolling it out massively. Definitely. It's not to say that this doesn't happen. People pilot things, but sometimes yeah. they can spend far too much time getting to the point where they can pilot yeah. or, or, or create a vanguard. I can't remember what they call it these days. <laughs> um, but uh, So there's that. But also, going back to those variables, is understanding those variables so that when you are either scaling uh, a project or an approach or policy – or you are putting it into a different geographic area, that 
you understand which of those variables need to change. Right. So th there are many occasions where one city will look at what another city is doing and say, that seems like a great project, we should do that here. And they, they copy everything that's in the reports and what they've done, but they completely forget that there may be something about a particular person who was involved in that project that made it really much more viable. It could be because a whole host of different variables that they've not taken into account uh, were there. And I think that's where we begin to, um, to have better uh, policy in the long term, is that we're able to understand these variables and react to them. So you're talking, you're looking for an intelligent type of policy making which goes beyond the, the thought and beyond, goes beyond being instructed by data and that actually goes and tests it out in, in a small way and gets some of the initial questions, if you like, answered in the positive before moving forward. Or if it's answered like that idea wasn't very good or those assumptions were wrong, you can take it back to the drawing board and try it again. Yeah, um, so there is a, uh, a definite understanding out there that we need to approach kind of policy in a different way. One of the key things, I think, is the, the lack of understanding in a public sector that failure is not a bad thing yeah. all the time. Uh, there's a real failure. Certainly politicians are, are, are obsessed with it. Um, in the private sector, for instance, failure is just finding out a way of not doing something. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think that we haven't spent enough time explaining to people that sometimes we're going to do stuff, sometimes it's going to fail, but that's also useful. Uh, now, that's really difficult because people are like, well, you're spending public money. We want you to, um, to get things right because uh, we don't want to see waste, but also we want you to see, see you solving the problems that you say you're going to solve. But I certainly do think that there is a, uh, there is a need to, to accept uh, kind of failure. But, but when you do that, it's not just to turn around and say, oh, we give up. But it is to basically pivot and yes, turn around. Go okay. again. Yeah. Well, kind of flexible enough. Again, going back to some of that lean startup language is is can we pivot and can we just look at it in a, in a very different way? And it's maintaining that flexibility because you've got to handle on some of those variables and some of those different approaches that I think is a much more interesting way of developing policy and actually one that's much more in tune with the way people are going to be thinking in the future. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Lean Startup is a way of, of launching a product or starting up a business whereby you get the smallest version of that product out there so you can test some of your assumptions and when you realize you're wrong, you can then go back and tweak things and come back with version two, realize you're wrong again, come back, tweak something small and come back with version three. So you, you're failing fast but failing cheaply and yeah. that's how you get to the solution that actually works. I mean, we've all seen programs and policies uh, historically. I mean, things like uh, IT and the NHS is one great example yeah. where there is so much money poured after it in order to make the original proposal work when actually what would have been the best thing is to stop and say okay what else should we be doing instead of this and um and people are so worried about whether we'll save face because we've made that right policy i think if you start off on the right foot in terms of this is the approach we're going to take and you've got some bold leaders to be able to do that i think people are much more accepting of okay you've just found a way of not doing it but you're going to be doing it better this time and I suppose you're asking politicians to act less like politicians and more like scientists. To a degree, yeah. Um, yeah. Again, it goes back to that 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 idea that we talked about earlier, where people make policy as if it's the 
it's going to solve everything and it's going to last forever. Yes. Um, and again, there's always the proviso that not everyone does, but there's a general kind of approach that that does. Um, is that if you if you start off on that foot, I think you're you're bound to fail in the long run anyway, because um, you you've built in inflexibility, and I think the the need is to build in some flexibility. Um, because that's just much more the way, that's one of the trends I think that you need to take into account for the future. Flexibility, not just in terms of the policy making you, you, you make, but also you can see in terms of the sharing economy, in terms of the gig economy uh, and the like. So the gig economy mean, meaning people take on uh, different bits of work rather than in particular having a specific career. There's much more of that, that going on and that sharing economy around the kind of Ubers, the Airbnb, that kind of, that kind of approach. Um, is that that lends itself to uh, needing to be much more flexible in the way you approach things, and the way you approach using space, the way that you approach dealing with others. Uh, and I think if you start off policy making in that way, that's a, a much more that's much going to be much more in tune with how people think in the future. So fascinating stuff there from James Noakes, someone at the coalface of all this futuristic politics development. And a big thanks to James for taking time out of a very, very busy schedule. I hope you enjoyed listening in as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. The Alan Parry podcast is now available on iTunes. And if you like the show, please do go over and give it a five-star review over on iTunes. That will really help spread the word. And please tell your friends about the show too. You can also visit alanparry.com, that's spelled A-L-U-N, where you'll find all past episodes and all of my many blog posts. Most of all, thanks for listening, and until the next one, take care.